0: The New Testament reading is from Revelations 5, 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And The elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord.
1: I was thinking a week ago that, man, no one's going to show up on Christmas. And it was packed. I thought, well, New Year's Eve will be our New Year's Day. It'll be back to full again. So I got it wrong. I'm not a very good prognosticator, but. I'm really thankful that you're here, and if there was just one of you here, two of you here, I would be thrilled to share this time with you, and there's not a place I would rather be than with you to kick off uh, this new year and hopefully a renewed sense of purpose and mission in our church. Um, I look forward to spending this year with you, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. We're wrapping up our Advent uh, series on the Peaceable Kingdom, and we're ending with the passage that Anne read. Let me pray for us as we get started. God, I pray that You would lead us not only this morning, not only as we contemplate this solitary passage, but as we think about this peaceable kingdom, this vision that You have laid out that we believe will one day be reality. And Lord, let us live as if that's true. Let us live as if the picture that is in our bulletin will one day be made reality. That we would live with peace, that we would live with hope, that we would live with charity, that we would seek in our work, in our families, in our school, wherever we find ourselves this week and this year, that we would work to bring in aspects of that coming kingdom, of what will be true when you wipe every tear from every eye, when you heal every hurt. Lord, I pray that we would contemplate this not just today, but throughout the year and that You would bring forth that peaceable kingdom in pieces, but one day in fullness into our hearts and into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a short survey of literature, film, TV will tell us and show us that we are fascinated with alternative realities, with a world that's out there that may exist, that there might be people, cultures, worlds that we don't know about. This is fascinating to us, and we write books, make films, we read books and watch films. The Twilight Zone, or Alice Down the Rabbit Hole, or Lucy Through the Back of the Wardrobe, or Young Spock Meeting Old Spock on a Distant Planet, or my favorite, A Long Time Ago in a Galaxy Far, Far Away these alternate realities captivate us. And it's not just in fiction, but also in science, in theoretical science. And you think of stranger's cat that is at the same time alive and dead somehow. There's two realities that coexist at the same time. Or the multiverse theory, which Stephen Hawking and others posit billions upon billions of universes existing at the same time, these alternate realities. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that The Apostle John tells us that in his exile on the island of Patmos, that he receives a vision not simply of the future, which is how we normally and mostly think about Revelation, but about an alternative reality that exists now and that will one day fully envelop the world. That's the setting of the book of Revelation, that alternate reality we find ourselves in chapter 5 in the throne room of god in the centerpiece of this alternate kingdom this alternate reality and really verse our chapter 5 rather is the climax to the whole book of revelation and we hear this summons a summons for someone to open a scroll And this is great significance because if you've been reading through the Hebrew Scriptures, this idea of a scroll that holds the secrets of the past and present and future reality for all of humanity has been detailed over and over, has been alluded to. And now we find ourselves in chapter 5 of Revelation, and this scroll which apparently holds the fate of the world, or the cosmos, you could say, is written inside What does this scroll mean for reality, for humanity, and who can open it? And if you've been reading along in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these allusions to this mysterious scroll and who can open it, you would have gotten to Revelation and would have seen it as a page turner, something that you couldn't put down. What's going to happen? What's in this scroll? What's going to be revealed about the future of the world and my future? It's a really good story. It's the kind of fiction that you get lost in, that you can't put down. It's a familiar kind of fiction. But if it's only that, if it's only fiction, then there may be reason to read it, but not a whole lot of reason to contemplate it, to think about it, to let it seep into your reality, certainly not to develop a sermon on it, certainly not to be offended. By it, But John is claiming that while there may be certainly some symbolic elements, some stylized elements, especially in the chapters that follow, he's painting a picture of ultimate reality, that this alternative reality really exists now and will be seen more fully in the future. Now, I can understand if you're skeptical, because skeptical, sometimes I am. It's hard to think that that future reality exists now. But there's a reason that we're so fascinated with alternative re- realities, because it's not just a blank slate for us to write incredible, interesting fiction. But in these alternative realities, we have almost limitless opportunity for explaining our own and for recrafting our own story into something that's bigger than ourselves. This multiverse theory, which doesn't exist just in the Marvel universe, but in uh, reality, according to certain physicists, that many universes exist, that statistically speaking, we shouldn't be surprised that life as we know it has emerged in one of them. That when you have billions upon billions of universes, then it's likely that one of them is going to create intelligent life. And this is how incredibly smart people posit that this is how we got here. This is why there's something rather than nothing. But Paul Davies, who's a physics prophet at Arizona State, says, for a start, how is the existence of other universes to be tested? To be sure, all cosmologists accept that there are some regions of the universe that lie beyond the reach of our, our telescopes, but somewhere on the slippery slope between that And the idea that there are an infinite number of universes credibly reaches a limit. As one slips down that slope, more and more must be accepted on faith, and less and less is open to scientific verification. Extreme multiverse explanations are therefore reminiscent of theological discussions, Indeed, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of the one we do see is just as ad hoc as invoking an unseen creator. Here's an atheist physicist that is saying that some of the reasons, the ways that we get to explaining how we get here, you have to take them on as much faith as you would this story that we find in Revelation. In other words, it's not just Christians. It's not just religious people who are living by faith, trying to explain our present reality through visions of alternative ones. Now, John references this scroll, which explains, according to him, the past, the present, the future of humanity. But no one can open it. No one can unroll the scroll, and people are weeping Because this is what tells our future, and no one can open it. This story has been coming along through the Hebrew Scriptures for hundreds of years. We've been expecting this revelation of what's in the scroll, and finally no one can open it. It will be a mystery hidden for eternity. In the movie Arrival, which I commend to you, a wonderful flick that really (laughs) uh, treads in some theological territory, This movie, The Aliens Land, and humanity is at stake. And in order for humanity to be saved, someone has to interpret this language. Someone has to enroll and read the scroll, as it were. And they go and find this brilliant linguist. She's the only one that can possibly understand what these strange zeros mean. It's not linear language as we've conceived of it, it's just circles with different shapes. And she spends weeks and months trying to figure it out. And she finally does. She breaks the code. But even upon knowing what those zeros represent, there's still a deeper language that has to be gifted to her. She has to receive it by revelation in order to truly understand. In Revelation, the question isn't who is smart enough to understand this language Who has the magic Dakota ring who can break the seal and break the code? No, the question is, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and thus preside over the judgment and recreation of the entire world? Who is worthy of that task? The summons is met with silence. The myriad of angels who fill the vaults of heaven singing praises to God without ceasing, they fall silent or maybe in the corner weeping. The elders who are around the throne of glory, who worship without pause, look at themselves and don't see themselves as fit for the task. They are not worthy. The four living creatures who hover and never stop singing praises of their Creator Are struck dumb. Who, if not these people, these creatures, are worthy to take from God's own hand this message, this scroll, the future of all creation, and bring it to its design goal? Which of God's creatures could do that? The final answer is none. No one who is created is worthy to open this scroll. There was silence in the throne room of heaven. And then a voice in the King James Version, of course. Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can open and read the scroll. A lion, a symbol of power and of dignity. But this is not a lion. This is the lion." the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who will come from Jesse's stump, the one who will be powerful enough to reignite and restart the Davidic kingdom that had been gone for a thousand years. This lion is the fulfiller of God's promises. He is worthy to open the scroll. However bleak the prospects of that fulfillment looked only a moment ago, now the lion strides forth and He is worthy, and everyone recognizes it. Everyone knows that not themselves, but only He can open the scroll. But wait, then there's an immediate twist because this lion suddenly becomes a lamb. Almost as quickly as the lion comes forth, assertive and powerful and strong, it becomes this wounded, sacrificial lamb. Lambs aren't meant for Big things. They're not meant for glory. They're a transitory thing. They're meant to grow wool. They're meant for lamb chops. And that's where they mostly end up for the slaughter. A lamb is not for kingdom building, but for being killed and eaten. And that appears to be the fate of this lamb, because verse 6 between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Slain indeed, because the fuller story that Revelation is connecting to is that Lamb who was a man upon a cross in agony and in defeat, slain by the religious and the imperial powers of the day. So is His death, is that death the destiny of the world? Is destruction to be poured out at the opening of this scroll? Is it to be the last word of this tainted and wounded world in rebellion against God? And maybe these next few chapters that are very scary and apocalyptic of bowls and pitchers and dragons, is that going to be the nature of the world and our experience of it? But no, there stands the Lamb slaughtered. And remarkably, notice how the passage proceeds. We expect the angels and the elders who were silent to now sing forth. The scroll has been opened. But verse 13 goes even farther. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Every creature you see in every nook and cranny of the world, every creature who is bathed in light or in darkness, every creature covered in scales or fur or feathers, every creature crawling, walking, running, flying, they all bow to this Lamb who was slain but they give Him glory and honor forever because why? He is still alive. His slaughter was temporary, and He is now alive and able to receive this glory and this praise and this worship that will never cease. All of the woes, all of the lament of Revelation, all of the terrible things that are scary to think about and to read about, all of the sorrow and all of the judgment falls upon this Lamb. Not upon creation as it rightly should, not upon you and I as we so richly have earned, but upon a substitute, a sacrificial Lamb. Now, it's certainly possible to think that this story is not true, that John is just making this up, but it's certainly a story like none other. It's so different, it's so bizarre even, that it's worth our reflection. A lion who is at the same time a slaughtered lamb, a God who judges, yes, but takes upon His own judgment upon Himself. This is the contradiction, the paradox in the very nature of God that is at the heart of of the gospel, that when you come to God, if you come in faith, if you come moving in, expecting to be forgiven, looking to Jesus, then you find not a lion who threatens to tear you to pieces, but you find a lamb that stands in your place. That's the vision that John ultimately gives us. When the scroll is finally unrolled, you see at the heart of the plan of God the weakness of a crucified Jesus. You see the contradiction, the paradox of salvation through defeat and of redemption through death and in itself being part of a still deeper contradiction, namely that the death and defeat of Jesus have been contradicted by His resurrection, a contradiction finally to be carried out to all of creation to all of humanity, to the ends of the earth, to all of the creatures, that they recognize it. And the question is, will you and will I? I said that chapter 5 is the climax to Revelation, but if you go forward to chapter 21, you get to see the culmination of that. John hints at it. Isaiah hints at it, lion and lamb lying together, the cobra lying at the children's den or vice versa. You see pictures and you see images, but in chapter 21, we see the culmination of this, con, this climax where heaven comes down and makes that alternative reality present now and fully present. In other words, there's still a coming realization of this sacrificial lamb, and that is the lamb finally ascending the throne, finally taking His rightful seat, not in a crucifixion, not upon a cross, not in a tomb, but on a throne. And it is that Lamb, that person, that God who is in this throne room, who says He is able. He is not just able, but He is worthy to open the scroll. Friends, in the midst of our lives of contradiction, we are to hold fast to this Divine contradiction that upends our reality, that will, in the end, annul and reform everything that is bad and sad and wounded and broken about our world, and everything that is broken about our own hearts. He is won for you, a victory that no one can take away, even in the midst of lives of contradiction, lives of struggle lives of sin. There is a victory that is vicarious, that you can't do anything about, that you can't make better, that you can't lose if it is given to you, if it is granted to you, if it is revealed to you. In the midst of our lives of contradiction, John says, take comfort. All you who labor and taste defeat, lift up your hearts. All you who suffer, in following this sacrificed Savior, He is one of victory for you and for this church and for the church that nobody can take away. And it is Him, finally, slaughtered for our sins, but risen for salvation, who is in control of the events that sweep and swirl around us and confuse us and befuddle us. He is at the helm. Because this vision is not just something that John dreamed up, but it is a vision of an alternative reality that is real and that will come forth. In light of the gracious contradiction of Jesus' death and resurrection, live. Live this year. Live into that victory as if it is yours, because it is. It is live to serve, live to befriend, live to give ourselves away in sacrifice like our Savior without fear. Let's pray. Father God, make this real in our lives. This is a a beautiful, stunning, and a bit of a scary picture, especially as we think about ourselves and where we stand in that story Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether church is the the normal place that we show up on Sunday morning because we believe and we want to believe more, whether we are poking at the tires of Christianity, seeing if it could hold air, or whether we are here just because we've been brought or just by at least apparent accident, Lord, I pray that You would speak into our lives and give us hope, give us a sense of Your control over the events of our lives, and therefore let us live with faith and live with sacrifice. Live not hoarding our wealth and hoarding our things and hoarding the blessings that You've given us, but willing to separate and be separated from them so that others can receive Your grace. We pray that we would leave here this morning with a sense of hunger to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.